I'll give you the title of my message and then explain a little bit of why. The title is Watch and Grow in Faith. I have the opportunity and have for some time now to serve on the Council of Elders. Mr. Meredith always, in the last session we have, when we are in person twice a year, will speak to those who are members of the Council, as, as he certainly is, a presiding evangelist, and to us a father in many ways in God's church. And he will exhort us in different areas. But one of the constant themes that Mr. Meredith will address is that as leaders in God's church, we need to grow in faith. And I know more recently that has been very much a part of his thought, that God's church needs to grow in our faith and the depth of our faith toward God. Now, many years ago, and it was mentioned earlier in the feast already, Mr. Armstrong brought out, and he often repeated, many of you don't get it. Well, in retrospect, I came to respect in a way that I perhaps had not previously, you do not ignore God's servants. And, and so today I want to address this subject, brethren, in a way that I hope helps you in, to grow in faith. And if you're going to address the subject of faith, I believe you have to start with Abraham, the father of the faithful. And I ask if you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6. In Hebrews 6, we find here the Apostle Paul is writing to the brethren in Jerusalem. They did not know it. Perhaps they had some inclination of what was happening in their time. But it was only a few years after the writing and receiving of this letter that the city and their homeland was destroyed. And at that time, uh, unlike our society, it was not a mobile society. It was a devastating thing to leave everything they had, perhaps the land and homes that had been in their families for generations, and to flee. And yet God mercifully spared the lives of those who took to heart his message of warning. So it was a very difficult time. And the Apostle Paul speaks to them. In Hebrews chapter 6, he speaks of Abraham. In verse 13, it says, When God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. Let's skip down here just momentarily to verse 16. It says, For men indeed swear by the greater. An oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath. Now what was the effect of that in that God swore to him to Abraham? Well, let's notice then in verse 15, which we skipped. It says, And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. Based on God's promise to him, and it was a time of patience, because the promise was made, and you need not turn to it, it's in Genesis 12, when Abraham was 75 years old. The fulfillment of that promise in that the, you might say the son of promise, Isaac, was born when Abraham was 100 years old. 
So for two and a half decades, as he grew older year by year, he began as time went on, and the Bible reveals to think Ishmael was that son. But that was not God's intent. But he continued to endure. The book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 11, it speaks of Abraham. It says, By faith, verse 8, By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance, he went out not knowing where he was going. Of course, that's recorded in Genesis 12. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And God's speaking of him having a son, because that son of promise did something to Abraham, that is, it confirmed or strengthened his faith. It's interesting here in verse 11, it says, By faith Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed. And she bore a child when she was past the age because she judged him faithful who had promised. And that's an interesting statement because if you go back to Genesis, and I'm not going to do it because there's quite a bit of ground I wish to cover, brethren, it brings us to our day today. But I'd like you to see a pattern in God's Word. When she first heard Jesus who had come with two angels to Abraham, and she had, in a sense, got up by the door, put her ear to the door to hear what was being said, she heard Jesus Christ say to Abraham, You're going to have a child. And you can read in Genesis 18, she did what? She laughed within herself. I'm an old lady. I'm way past. And Abraham, he's an old man. You know, <laughs> this isn't going to happen. And yet we read in the scripture, in retrospect, it says, by faith. She was a woman of faith. What happened? Well, obviously she was challenged and she denied it. But what took place? Well, it's interesting because if you read right on in the book of Genesis, you read of Jesus sharing with Abraham, not to hide from him because he was going to give him great promises, what he was about to do. And that was regarding Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham, undoubtedly, very aware of the fact he had a nephew there and a family, he said, well, God, what if? And he began to go down in numbers. What if there's 50 righteous and and he realized, well, maybe there won't be. I doubt if he was ignorant of what was happening and the nature of the city and the, and the valley. He proceeded all the way down to ten. And perhaps at that point, I don't know, but perhaps he felt comfortable because he knew of Lot and his family and sons-in-law. And he thought they were righteous before God. All of us know what took place. That wasn't true. The city was destroyed. The valley was destroyed with fire and brimstone. Sarah knew that. Sarah heard what was going to happen, and then it happened. 
And it happened by the word of the individual she heard and had laughed at that regarded her own flesh. I think, brethren, if you put the pieces together, and I don't think it takes a lot of math to do it, it influenced her heart. She suddenly had a different spirit regarding the promise that had been given to her to have a child. Now, it wasn't a long period of time. You can read in the previous chapter that Abraham had already reached the age of 99, and the child was born when he was 100. But I think in those events, something took place within her. And it was because God had made a statement of an event in a very short time, that event happened in a very remarkable way. Brethren, when you look in the Bible, we'll see that there's a pattern. And it's a pattern based on what faith is about. And I hope in one area, as a result of this message, it will help you to watch and grow in faith. Let's notice in Hebrews chapter 1, excuse me, chapter 11, verse 1, The Bible describes faith. It says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for. Now let's think about that statement. What is substance? Well, substance is something you experience, something you have been through. We experience the substance of faith when in faith we trust in God. We trust in God to heal us, and we're healed. It strengthens our faith. I've learned in my life, and I think about it, there's times in my life when it's not, been about, it's not been about me, it's been about others that God's intervened with. I've seen how he has blessed their faith, whether it be through healing, or through Sabbath trials, or through other trials of life, and they trusted in God. They did what was right. And sometimes they simply put their faith in him. So we can, in a sense, personally experience substance because we've trusted in God. Rather, we also experience the substance of faith when we see our prayers answered for others or we see the brethren as we all collectively pray for someone and they're healed or God intervenes perhaps in a miraculous way to spare their job or employment or perhaps a family issue. And so substance is something, in a way, we participate in some way directly in. And, of course, when we actually ourselves personally trust in God in something that may be very private, and we ask him to intervene or to be a part of a solution, and that happens, it strengthens us remarkably. So that's one aspect of faith. That's one area where we can grow. It's one reason in God's church that we pray for others. We share what, you know, what happens unless they personally, for private reasons, ask that we do not. And I'd encourage you to do so. I understand sometimes in certain situations that we keep things private. But always understand the element that if God's intervened in your life, you have the opportunity to encourage others through that intervention. We read on then, it says in the second portion of the verse, the evidence of things not seen. Now, Paul writes this in the context of creation. 
But we also have another kind of evidence of things not seen in the Scripture. And it is where I'd like to focus, brethren. It's in the fact that God has given us various prophecies and events that are foretold in the Scripture. And we have evidence of that from the Bible right here. And if you look in the Scripture and you begin to examine this issue, you see that this is a pattern that God had given to his people time and time again to encourage them to trust him, to have faith in him. And I'm only going to cover a few of the patterns. I I might encourage you, as was brought out earlier, to go over notes. I might, in this subject, encourage you to, to take some time and go through more than I will cover or have time, more than you want me to cover here today. Um, Mr. Stein had two pieces of chicken, and he's going to stay awake for about an hour and a half. So (laughs) So I I know my time's limited. (laughs) But I'll encourage you to go through and just ask yourself, is, is there more evidence? Can I find this in many other places? Because you will. Now I'll cover some of the obvious. One I started with was was Sarah. She saw something happen. We read later in retrospect, it was by faith. But we read of her first was no, it was not faith. She she doubted. Well, if you look in the scripture, you'll find in the subsequent history of Israel, God often backed his word with miraculous victories in war, Or with signs and miracles, he backed up his servants. In fact, when you read the history of Israel after the kings established and some were evil and they turned from God, they actually hated God's servants. They didn't want them to show up. They were always bearers of bad news. Now, that's not a problem if somebody comes to you and says, well, doom and gloom is coming and it doesn't happen. But if somebody shows up at your doorstep... And you don't like what they have to say, but every time they tell you this is going to happen because of your evil conduct, or if you go to war, you're going to lose, and every time they're right, you don't want them to come to your door. And it's interesting because you'll find time after time in the history of Israel that transpired. Now, those who were God's servants, in a sense, as kings, and turned to God, they sought the counsel of God's servants. And the reason they did is because they knew that God would, through them, reveal whether or not they were doing the right thing. And they were doing so as leaders in the nation of Israel, God's people. It's interesting, we go back and read some of the accounts And how, in some cases, because it didn't come directly from a servant of God, you can read the account of Josiah, it came from the king of Egypt, said, no, God is the one who sent me, your God sent me on this mission. No, he he went to war with him and he lost his life. You can read Jeremiah, mourned him greatly, because he had been a righteous man, but he didn't listen. We also see the same pattern when God brought Israel out of Egypt. It was with great signs and wonders. When he got down to actually delivering them, which we know of through the Red Sea, he told them, stand still. See the hand of God. He wanted them, brethren, to be inspired with faith. 
He wanted them to build a complete trust in him. And he backed it up time and time again to try to build that relationship. I always look back on that and wonder how in the world did they see all of these things and come to the the heart and attitude of not trusting God. But as we look in our time and the times we live, I think we can understand it better. And I'll get into that a little bit later because we live in a time when there's tremendous evidence and many have turned their head from it and ignored it. And so there's a pattern in the Scripture. You'll find it with Moses. You'll find it with Elijah. It's amazing with Elijah when you read the account. He's with this woman. She's miraculously being fed. Her child dies. God revives him through his servant. And then she says, at that point, having all of these things, now I know. (laughs) It took the resurrection of her son back to life to actually be convicted. I know you're a servant of God. We can be stubborn. We really can be. You can read of Elijah. You can read of Isaiah. In fact, as you go through, you'll find time and time again, God backed up his servants. Those that were faithful, their faith grew. It increased. And we know from the scripture there were the thousands, literally, who served God at times when God's servants did not know it, did not understand, and yet, obviously, God was working in their life. So my point as we go through and go forward, brethren, this message is to help you to begin to be aware and to really appreciate the evidence that we have, the things that are happening and have happened in our life, that have happened even in the church of God, that we would grow in faith. Because sometimes something can take place right in your presence. And if you don't take careful note of it and really think about it, you may not really and truly see God's hand in the way you should. We look at Jesus Christ and his coming. We find that he performed miracles and signs. And, of course, it gave testimony to his word. I think the most remarkable thing is how he came back and on a number of occasions appeared to his people. That he wanted them to fully grasp and see and know that he was resurrected. That they would in fact have, and the promise was, life eternal as a spirit being. Let's notice a few examples in Acts chapter 1. This is one that relates to the day of trumpets, which we kept and observed Christ's second coming. We read here in verse 9, Now when he had spoken, that is Jesus, had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. It's interesting because God didn't just want them to see this. He actually wanted them to understand. Who also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into the heaven? 
This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go up into heaven. And so the emphasis wasn't just on what they saw, it was what was ahead of them. It was the promise, it was the future. And brethren, that's very true in our presence here. We come here to rejoice something that lies ahead. It's not happened. And we have to have a full assurance and have faith in God to fully embrace it, as he would want us to, in keeping the feast and rejoicing before him, that we actually get the picture that we're, what we're doing here is about a reality that lies ahead. The more real that is in our mind and our heart, frankly, the more pleasing we are in God as we keep this feast. In 1 Corinthians 15, we read in the Bible, and I'll go back to another account, but there are several accounts of the apostles and the disciples seeing Jesus Christ. Sometimes people overlook the fact God also gave this same inspiration to the brethren. In 1 Corinthians 15, Starting here in verse 3, the Apostle Paul writes, and it's to a church in Corinth. This was a city of undoubtedly brethren who had means, a city of trade. And even though this was in Corinth, I'm sure there was trade that took place in Jerusalem and the other areas of Israel. So he tells them in verse 3, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once. Five hundred brethren saw Jesus Christ, the resurrected Jesus Christ. They saw it all at one time. They were together. Of whom the greater part, the majority of them, remained to the present. But some had fallen asleep. Now, if you were in Corinth, I know what I would do. Maybe even if I didn't have the means and I had a friend or I knew someone that was traveling a ship, they were going to Jerusalem. Would you look up a few of these people? I want to know. And I'm absolutely sure, knowing human nature, that was done by many people. Did you actually see that? Well, make sure you ask three, four, five. Somebody could have had a hallucination here. You know, <laughs> They may have had too much wine. <laughs> That's what others thought when they saw God's servants inspired and filled with the Holy Spirit. But you know, brethren, the word came back time and time again. No, that's what they all saw. They saw the same thing. They saw Jesus Christ resurrected. And of course that inspired an excitement and also a tremendous faith in the New Testament church. You think Jesus was aware of that? Notice in John chapter 20. In John 20 verse 19. God sees our hearts. He knows, brethren, our thoughts. 
We find here the... Well, actually, I don't have the right... I, I really want to read verse... Let's start in verse 27. No, let's read verse 20, and then we'll go from there. It says, Then the same day, verse 19, at evening, being the first day of the week when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled... For fear of the Jews, Jesus came, stood in the midst, and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. He didn't just think they would immediately, you know, well, this is Christ. He showed them his hands and his sides. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Then later in verse 27, this is speaking of Thomas, Then he said to Thomas, Reach your fingers here and look at my hands. And reach your hands here and put it into my side. Why? Do not be unbelieving. You know, in spite of what Thomas, he still doubted. It was still difficult for him. And so Jesus wondered what? He wanted him to believe. He wanted him to have faith. He wanted him to know. And I think it's important for us to understand, brethren, God wants us to have faith. He's called us here. He's brought us together. He's brought our, our church, the living church of God, around the world. Everyone who is able to be together and those that are not with us, They're linked with us. God's blessed us with technology. So even though they're not right here, there are a number of people who are hearing me, and undoubtedly, as we haven't before and after church, I may see some of you, know you as brethren. God wants us to believe. He says, do not be unbelieving, but believe. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. He was challenged on it. But his response was to believe. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. You know, one thing the Bible doesn't really tell us is that did he do it? I don't know. Christ told him to. It doesn't say that he did, and then he said it, but he may have, brethren. I don't know. But I know what happened in this moment changed his heart. And God doesn't say, well, now you're being hypocritical. He says, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. But you know, God has given us evidence, brethren. He's not left us without evidence of the truth of his word and the truth of his promises. In fact, we live in a time when God has given us incredible evidence of his existence, of what lies ahead, and the promise of his kingdom. You know, the Bible tells us that God sees those things that be not. That he looks to the future. He is able to foresee in a way that we cannot. When God has done that, brethren, he shares it with us. And many of the promises that we read and rejoice in regarding the kingdom of God, 
were given to us by God's servants who witnessed to Israel and to Judah. And so we read in Isaiah, we read in Jeremiah. And yet we know as we read those statements, and even as they were written, often they were written in a way that is very clear. They were not for the immediate future. They were for the distant future, for the time that's spoken of in the Bible as the latter days. But there's a remarkable prophecy in the Bible that is literally amazing, because many times people deny. You know, you, you look at people and, well, they, that's, you know, that, that may or may not, it wasn't intended for us. But, brethren, there's a remarkable prophecy in the Bible that you cannot deny. That prophecy goes back over 2,500 years of human history. And that prophecy, after generations, and literally we're talking of kingdoms, has been fulfilled exactly as prophesied 2,500 years ago. And that's incredible. The world doesn't want to really look at it. We in the Church of God have come to be familiar with it. But something I learned a number of years ago as I watched, I couldn't believe... As I saw people, and I saw Mr. Armstrong at times ridiculed, because we lived in the 1990s when some of these things were beginning to happen. Now since that time, more has happened. But I learned some lessons. I saw when people ridiculed someone, put them down, that created doubt, and brethren, doubt creates a lack of belief, and pretty soon things that you're even sure of and know of you begin to doubt. And you can't let that process begin. You have to think beyond that. You have to realize there are people who are naysayers. There are people who will ridicule. The Bible tells us that. And we cannot be influenced by them. Not that we're foolish. We look at the truth, the facts. Now, Mr. Armstrong has been ridiculed by many because he told us certain things would happen, but they did not happen on the schedule that Mr. Armstrong saw. You ever think about that? I've, I've seen Mr. Meredith and even our church ridiculed for those reasons. But if you stop and think about it, what does any servant of God do? What did Jesus Christ say we are to do? It says, when you pray, you start what? Our Father in heaven, we pray, Thy kingdom come. And there's not going to be a servant of God who doesn't pray, Thy kingdom come, and who after a period of time does not have in his heart a great desire for God's kingdom, and who does not desire that that kingdom would come in his life. Because that's been his daily prayer. That was true of the Apostle Paul. It was true of Mr. Armstrong. It's going to be true of every servant of God. I'm sure, brethren, it's true of each of you. You pray, thy kingdom come. You desire, you hope and pray that you will live to see. It may or may not be true. You will in a moment in a twinkling of an eye. We're going to return with Jesus Christ. So we're going to see it happen. So please understand that. 
whether alive or asleep, who are going to be raised, those who are asleep, from the grave. But to fault someone, to ridicule them, to discredit the things they say. You know, I've been a member of the church for many, many years now. This is my 56th feast. My first time I attended church was in Eugene, Oregon. I was a teenager. Our family walked. You've seen the pictures of the building, the little white church building outside the outskirts of Eugene. My brother told me a number of years ago he attended an event in United, and they had a video of the history of the church. It was in Panama City. He was there. He was telling me about it. I said, Dean, do you realize in that audience, you were the only individual who sat in that room that was ever in that building? He said, well, I hadn't really thought about that. I was there also, and my parents and my sister. And about our family was brought church attendance to 75. There were 70 other brethren who were in that building as well, our first Sabbath. And we knew very little about you know, aspects of the church. First time my parents kept the Days of Eleven Bread, we had hamburgers during the break. In the afternoon, the minister explained what unleavened bread was. <laughs> so we, you know, those of you that are new, you're going to learn. And as God, all of us have been there, we, we learn and we grow. And, but it doesn't stop. I keep learning. I keep seeing things in the Bible I didn't see. You know, and I, I find it amazing. I, I, honestly, I see things more today, I believe, than I did years ago. But to ridicule someone or find fault with them. Was Mr. Armstrong wrong to point out to us the things I'm going to cover? I'd like to ask you that question. You think about it. Because see, what Mr. Armstrong came to understand was a prophecy of the book of Daniel. And that's a prophecy over 2,500 years ago God gave that outlined the kingdoms of this world. Let's notice here in Daniel chapter 2. And Daniel, at this point in his life, was a very young man. He could have actually been still in his late teens. He may pro- I, I suspect he probably was closer to, to 20, 21 years of age. But he was a young man. He'd been brought into captivity. We, we know the account. I'm not going to go into the details of the account. We have wonderful literature, brother, that has explained this. None better, in my opinion, than that written by John of Gwynn, which is a publication of the Living Church of God. There will be a few times I quote from it, but we have a, a booklet that basically makes it really clear. That's the explanation. I've read the ones worldwide, and I've read other material. No one explained it better than John of Gwynn in the booklet, The Beast of Revelation, Myth, metaphor, or soon coming reality. And I suspect you probably have a copy at home. I hope you go back and think about it and read it and go make sure you fully understand it. But in Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar, who had captured Judah, who brought a few of the young people back to serve and took them literally because of their intelligence and their, uh, I think, kind of character they had and their persona to train them. It was challenging. Daniel found himself confronted with 
various foods and delicacies, and he refused. didn't know the result of that, and he wasn't alone. You can read in the Scripture. He had friends and companions, but they were faithful to God. You can read in Daniel 2, when this event took place, and Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and he was he basically got disgusted with all of his uh, wise men, and, and of course at that point, that's who Daniel was with. He was being trained, and it was a part of that group, and they were all going to be killed. The man that was sent, Daniel pleaded with him, let, let me, you know, give me a day or so, let me go, and he went to his friends. You can read that in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 16 and 17. And they did so that they could seek mercy from God of heaven concerning this secret. So Dan, that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. But God revealed to him, and he understood, because it was very difficult. Nebuchadnezzar was smart. He thought, if I tell them what the dream is, then how do I know that they can interpret it? But if they can tell me what the dream was, then I can trust them. <laughs> Pretty straightforward. I'm going to tell you the truth about a dream, then they ought to have the ability to tell you what the dream was. Well, as we read in the Scripture... We find in verse 31 that Daniel was able to. Why? Not because of himself. He made that plain. It's not been revealed to me, verse 30, because I have more wisdom than anyone living, but for our sakes who make known the interpretation to the king. It wasn't because of his wisdom, but rather God in his mercy protected them. It says, You, O king, were watching, verse 31, and behold a great image. This great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. And we've tried to capture that in our literature and, and the illustrations involved. The image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. As you read on through this chapter, you see that Daniel explained then the dream. Explained that this image represented four kingdoms. And the first of those kingdoms was the kingdom of Babylon, of Nebuchadnezzar. I always thought it interesting. I don't know if there's a direct correlation. But later when Nebuchadnezzar made an image of himself to be worshipped, he made it of gold. <laughs> You've been told by God's servant, whom he literally, you know, accepted, that Daniel served a God who was above all gods, that he was the God of gods. But he turned around and he made an image so people would, in a sense, honor him. He made it of gold. Now, obviously, that was perhaps the most precious metal, but the Bible, it's, it's kind of interesting to think about it. I wonder if it influenced his you know, decision. Daniel goes on to explain that following that kingdom of gold, his kingdom would be another kingdom. And it was represented by another part of this image. And then the third, and then finally, a kingdom that was represented by the two feet. 
iron and clay. Later, about 65 years later, God gave Daniel further understanding. That's in Daniel chapter 7. In this case, God didn't give him a vision of, let's say, a a person or, because it does describe, as you read it, of a head and arms and breastplate and so on and of legs of a human image. Here he gave him an image of various animals. And we read of in Daniel 7 of a lion, a bear, a leopard. But then it speaks of here, verse 7 of Daniel 7, After this I saw in the night visions, behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. And of course, that's then also emphasized. There's other things here in Daniel 7. But one thing God made clear here is this beast was uniquely different than the three that preceded it. And with this, we find then the beginning of something that's expounded in Revelation, that it had ten horns. And so in Revelation, we read in chapter 13, as God inspired John, because he, God began then to unfold the understanding as he proceeded in history, because at this point in time, some of what had been given to Daniel was now history. And when you read Daniel chapter 8, and you read how God revealed to him part of the understanding of Daniel 7 that related literally to the events that were to come, not way off in the distance, not in the latter days, but past his time, but beginning with his time, I have to believe that people of God began to have some understanding. They began to look at it and say, well, these things have happened. There was this king and this king and this, and this is what happened. Because this was a part of history. The other part of it, how would you look forward, brother, and know and understand ten horns? What did it really mean? And what is this? That would be difficult. And so we read in Revelation further explanation of this prophecy. But this prophecy, the foundation of it started 2,500 plus years ago. So now, about 80 years into the life of John, God began to reveal to him a vision. This was for the latter days. A part of that, Revelation 13 and Revelation chapter 17, brethren, explain to us in greater detail the understanding of this fourth beast. The one that was iron and clay, who had ten toes, the one that he reads and he was inspired to see in vision that had incredible teeth and strength and was different than the others. And we read that in Revelations chapters 13 and chapter 17. I'm going to read just a little bit from John Nguyen's booklet because it's helpful to understand, just so in speaking here you understand. It says, The beast of Revelation 13 corresponds to what Daniel saw in Daniel chapter 7. However, the beast of Revelation 17 is different. It is a creature ridden by the woman, 
Unlike the earlier description, the beast in Revelation 17 is the one that was and is not. I read that, brethren, because when did that understanding come to take place among God's people? Mr. Armstrong was influenced by that during the time of World War II. Because his early thought was, perhaps this is it. It wasn't that clear. You look back in history, there's a few times when you look in retrospect, you wonder. But then he began to clearly see that no, Hitler was not going to. Those forces were not going to conquer the world well before the the turn of the tide because he came to understand that what he was seeing was right here in God's Word. It was in Revelation 17 that we're speaking here now of a beast that was and is not. God gave him understanding. Mr. Meredith mentioned that in the opening night message, that Mr. Armstrong began to say that, no, there's going to be another revival of Europe. That brings us to our time, brethren. I heard Mr. Armstrong say those things. I have to tell you just personally, I, I, I don't have the best memory. You know, my wife and I'll talk, and sometimes I'll tell a story, and, well, no, you didn't get the details right. And so, in fact, even today at lunch, I was, we were talking about, I'll just share it with you. We have a habit of, if I speak and we're in a car together and say, well, how was the sermon? Well, a number of years ago, I gave a sermon. I was not real comfortable with it, and I, I almost didn't ask her, to be honest with you. <laughs> so I, I said, well, you know, what it, 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 sometimes, you know, you, you struggle with something. I knew what I wanted to say, but I kind of struggled with it, and I didn't feel it came out the very best. And, and so I asked her, and, and she, uh, she used the phrase, I played a lot of baseball when I was young and enjoyed it a lot. And she said, well, it wasn't a home run. <laughs> so now we have this kind of uh, way of communicating. Uh, I, I will ask her, well, how was today's term? Was it a bunt single? You know, <laughs> you know, and and so I get I, I sort of get evaluated. Well, that was a solid single or a double or, you know, you could have. And once in a while, she's pretty rare. I mean, I'm not sure I can remember. My memory's not real good. <laughs> but I never personally ever heard Mr. Armstrong set a date, and I heard him quite a bit. I heard him talk about the future. I heard him express his desire to live until the return of Christ. I heard a lot of other people around him, brethren, began to set dates or began to talk about, you know, Mr. Armstrong, this and that. I heard that a lot. But I personally, I just have to tell you, I don't know. If you did, please let me know. I never heard Mr. Herbert Armstrong ever set a date. I've never heard Mr. Meredith set a day. I know his desire. I know he'll talk 7 and 17 or 5 and 15, and, but I have never heard him because, see, Mr. Meredith, as all of God's servants have, and I desire, brother, I would desire that I'm alive when Jesus Christ returns and I'm caught up in the air. 
I don't know if that will be true or not. I'm 71 now. I don't have too many aches and pains, but I have a few I didn't have a few years ago. And I have these things on so I can see to read. (laughs) My eyes are changing. And other things are changing in my life. And I'm not ignorant of that. But I've never heard Mr. Meredith set a day. What I have heard him do repeatedly, and the same thing I heard Mr. Armstrong do, is increasingly expound and warn us as brethren, we need to be alert, we need to be aware. We need to understand what's going on in the world about us. And brethren, my purpose is, is we see these things, we do not take them for granted, we don't think, well, I knew that, and Mr. Armstrong said that, that we stop and realize that the Bible told us Mr. Armstrong understood only because God gave him an understanding of his word. And these things were recorded... And they're happening today. But they were recorded 2,500 years ago, and at the very time Jesus Christ, 100 years after. And nobody can test that. I don't see any Bible theologian, or theologian who, who goes up and says, Oh, no, 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 that was snuck into the Bible eight, you know, 200 years ago. No, we have the manuscripts. We have the documents. We know they go back. They just don't want to believe it. God has not given them understanding. But we have understanding. When you sit down and read the book, brethren, I know for a fact if God's Spirit is in you, you will understand it. You may have to go back and forth and put some of the pieces together and, and think about what Mr. Gwynn says regarding some statements that separate, because Revelation 13 and Revelation 17 aren't speaking always of the same beast. And there's additional revelation given to us in chapter 17. And it's very important to understand. It's very important to Mr. Armstrong to understand that the beast that he saw then was not of, that was and is not, was not of what he thought of the resurrection in the same manner. So he had to realize what Mr. Gwynn brings out says the seven-headed creature, Revelation 17, is clearly the Holy Roman Empire because the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman or woman sits. There's a clear distinction, and it's easily and plainly seen in the Scripture. My point is, brethren, these things are happening. And as we watch them happen, it should inspire us. It shouldn't be just about our safety and our skin that, you know, hopefully we'll be delivered to a place of safety or God will keep us. You know, I I certainly appreciate that. I pray for my children and my grandchildren that way, that God will protect them. I have family who's a part of God's church. I have children who are not. I love all of them. And so I pray. I pray God would protect my children and my children's children. That God would bless them and and hopefully they would be a part of. Because I do believe our children, brethren, I don't think it's that far off. But I believe they'll be a part of that generation that have the opportunity to rebuild. I pray that God will bless them and he will protect them. But watching, brethren has something that we need to really grasp and take a hold of. 
And that is, if we watch and we see these things, every time we see something that falls into place, even a small thing, it should build your trust in God. That's why God revealed it, not only just so we'd be saved, so to speak. He wants us, just like he did with the servants, just like he did with Thomas, he wants us to be believing. And rather than things can happen around us, and we, oh yeah, well, export expected that. or the, But if we don't take hold of it and understand, it doesn't have the same effect. When you look at world events and see prophecy fulfilled, then you begin to do what? You begin to see God's hand. You begin to understand. 2,000, 2,500 years ago, God revealed these things. And we begin to grow in faith. It's just simply reality. It'd be true even in a carnal thing. If you had some kind of a source of information, and you had a 2,500 year track history, and they said, invest over here, what would you do? Well, there are people who publish. I've got a 10-year track history, a 15-year track history. I, you know, and they're out there, and there are and people who give them their money, their future, their retirement. They trust in them for security. God's provided for us a 2,500-year-plus track record of His Word, and we're seeing it. We can look back in history, and we're seeing the last chapter the final resurrection, and we see it literally beginning to take place. And we know it's going to. Why? Because there's a record, a history. And brethren, you need to latch on to that. And it's the very purpose of this message. It should build your faith in God. It should make you a true believer in every way. And I hope that you do that. I hope you begin to look at events and prophecy. We're aware of it in the church. In fact, Dr. Scott is involved in every week in the world ahead. We have articles in News and Prophecy, and the entire focus of those articles is what's happening in the world that is in conjunction with God's Word and His prophecy of our day and our time. And so we, we in a sense, try to help. We're trying to point out to you these things are happening. And so when you read it and you see it, now that's one page that contains three summaries. It's very helpful if you take the time and look at the link or take a look at uh, where the article came from and go read the rest of it. There's sometimes, there are times I know, and I'm sure Dr. Winnell will tell you, we can't put everything in that one page of what's going on because sometimes, brethren, there's a number of things that are taking place in the world about us that are very important to the future. What's happening in Europe right now regarding immigration is going to change Europe. And it's going to change the nature of the people who live there. And a nation that prided itself in being tolerant is going to become intolerant. And they're not going to have much of a choice. They're already in a situation of advising their children who go to school near immigrant camps, do not expose yourself. Don't wear the skirts that you would normally wear. Don't wear the blouse you would normally wear. 
because they've had incidents of those young ladies being raped. You don't think that touches people's lives? You don't think if you're a German mother and you're told by your government your daughter can't wear her clothes, you have to go buy her something different, make sure she's covered herself, that it would not affect your heart? That's happening. That's, that was yesterday. I, I read that, what, a day or two ago. If you have an internet access, I hope you take the time and, and go to the site of Der Spiegel and connect to the English site and read that from time to time. We don't read in our press, brethren, things that are going on around the world. But it's out there, it's available to us. And that's also uniquely different. You realize when you look back in history, not that many years ago, how did people get the news? Well, they might have somebody come in who traveled through their village, and he would tell them, well, this and that is what happened. Now, that might be a year ago, if they lived in perhaps a more remote area. It might be two or three years old. Or they may hear it by rumor. We live in a uniquely different time in human history. I, I at one time, I would turn on, you know, ABC, NBC, whatever the network, and I'd watch the news or read the paper. I don't do that anymore. I frankly get on the Internet, and if I read something, I generally will try then to go to the area of the world that it took place and find out, is there video? Because we live in a very unique time. Something can happen in the world, and you can know about it literally minutes later, and sometimes if you jump online, you can see it as it continues. And it doesn't make any difference where it is in the world. There are people that have cell phones. I was talking to someone about a used cell phone. Oh, yeah, they're, you know, we, we tend to just get They sell them in Africa. <laughs> Very popular item. It links them to the world. And so people who have just some means, if they can, they buy a cell phone. We have a unique opportunity in history. We have an incredible blessing of literally watching what's happening and God's word being fulfilled, watching prophecy be fulfilled, brethren, and it should inspire us to faith. It should inspire us to trust in God. It should build our faith and our trust. So it's not only the book of Daniel we have we also have to all the prophecies there's things in Daniel that you may not even think about or notice one of the things I've noticed here recently and thought about there's events that are going to take place the Bible tells us you would not discern or expect if you looked at only human events and human nature and why do we know that because the Bible plainly tells us some very important events are going to take place as a direct result of powerful demonic influence. And so God allows certain evil spirits to go forth. We also know something our world is challenged by is the spread of wealth. Dr. Winnell this morning spoke of that and, and how that's taking place. That's not going to change. It's going to get worse. 
And the reason I know that, brethren, is because when you read in the Scripture, the Bible speaks of a time of great tribulation that troubles all of this planet, yet at that very same time are people then who are going to grieve. Why? Because Babylon is taken down. Why? Because they had great wealth. And we're not going to see that get better. We're going to see that get worse. And we know that, what? Based on God's Word. The Bible reveals to us, we're going to see, tremendous funds put into the development of arms. You think today is one thing. Do you ever stop and think about what God said of the beast power in Daniel? Notice in Daniel chapter 11. It literally reveals to us he's going to spend a fortune. Daniel chapter 11, verse 36. Speaking of this king that's going to rise up shall do according to his own will. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god, shall speak blasphemes against the God of gods, and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished, for what has been determined shall be done. He shall regard neither the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any god, for he shall exalt himself above them all. But in their place... He shall honor a God of fortresses and a God which his fathers did not know. He shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and pleasant things. God tells us this man who fears no one, he's going to build a military powerhouse and he's going to dump a ton of wealth. I suspect in technology and weapons, brethren, that give him superior power, reach across the planet. Thus he shall act against the strongest fortresses with a foreign god, which he shall acknowledge and advance its glory, and he shall cause them to rule many and divide the land for gain or for profit. You think you live in a world today that's armed? God tells us it's going to totally escalate. It's really interesting when you read about, we talk with the king of the you know, south coming up and attacking. I'm beginning to wonder, is that a physical attack or is that terrorist? I don't know. What we see in the world today, it could well, in fact, be acts of terrorism that Europe comes to the place they will not tolerate. But they're not going to act as we have or spend the pattern of this period of time in history. They're going to go down like a whirlwind. When that same king, that beast power, reacts to tidings, and it's interesting how it says, it says, but news, verse 44 of Daniel 11, but news from the east and the north shall trouble him. What does he do? Well, let's seek diplomacy. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. What's the nature of this kingdom? What's it described as in Daniel's? It's got teeth. It chews. It's powerful. And we're going to see that happen. We're going to see that development. We're going to see that technology. We're going to see weapons, rather than that perhaps will be unbelievable in terms of power and strength. Yeah, he's going to have these tidings. News is going to trouble him. 
Therefore he shall go out with great fury to destroy and annihilate many. God gives us sort of an insight of the nature of the individual that's going to be the beast power and where the focus is. There are things in the Bible, brethren, if we just take note of and begin to look at, we see a picture and we're going to see those things happen. But my point is, as they happen, don't think, well, it didn't happen on the schedule, I thought. Because I saw that. I said in meetings in 1991, 92, 93, 94, I saw time after time with somebody who was in the church who had responsibility in our former fellowship in the Worldwide Church of God. Was, they would start by ridiculing something Mr. Armstrong has said or something was published in a booklet. And I was absolutely amazed to see men that I had gone to college with, men that I had respected, who hook, line, and sinker bought into it. And I'm not talking about doctrine. I'm talking into the ridicule. I'm talking into being belittled. And suddenly all at once, the things, in spite of what was happening in the world about us even then, they turned a blind eye to it. I just, I was amazed. We cannot do that. We're God's people. The events that have been recorded that are in the Scripture, brethren, just like God set a pattern with Abraham, God said, you're going to have a child of promise. It's impossible for God in a physical sense to fulfill all the promises that there would be a great nation and a multitude of people without a child. It was 25 years that God gave him that child. One thing that's also fascinating in Hebrews is because God asked him to sacrifice that child. But you know the kind of faith that Abraham had built by this time in his life? You know, it doesn't tell us in the Old Testament what he thought. We do know that he obeyed God. And he didn't hesitate to obey him. But he wasn't Ignorant. He wasn't blind. He wasn't, as our society would call it, a quote, a true believer that doesn't have common sense or have in touch with reality. Now, he was a man of great reality. Now, he lived in, we would say, out in Mother Nature, and he had many people under him and responsibilities. Very intelligent man. But what did he believe? Well, we read in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17. It says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise offered up his only begotten son. As you go back and you read in the Bible, that God had told Abraham, This is the son of promise, not Ishmael. This is the son I promised you. A son that came by a miracle of God. Sarah knew that. Abraham knew that. But now he's asked you, sacrifice your son. So what did he believe? Of whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called. Concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead. from which he had also received him in a figurative sense. 
this very bright, intelligent man who was faithful to God, who obeyed God, who put his trust in God. Brethren, when he was put in that situation, God reveals to us what? The thoughts of his heart. He literally reveals to us what went on in Abraham's heart and his mind. His thought was, his conclusion, he, what's God going to do? He didn't really expect God to stop him. <laughs> he expected he would do it. God had never stopped him when he gave him instruction before. When God said, you get up and you leave, and God didn't you know, go down the road and say, hold on here, we've got a detour it's a U-turn, go on back. I know you trust me. He'd never stopped him before. And so he concluded what? That God would resurrect his son from the dead. That's the kind of faith he had. Why? Because he had seen the hand of God. And he didn't ignore it, brethren. In fact, in some ways, it was impossible to ignore as he saw his son grow and as a young man, he knew that was a son of, it was a miracle. It was not a possibility. And he knew that of his own flesh and blood. And you know, that's been true of God's servants, brethren. They see things happen. They trusted more in God. The Bible doesn't speak then, as we read of Thomas, of him later doubting. In fact, even at that point in time, he believed we have many opportunities to grow in faith. There are many others that I'm not touched on today. There's healings that take place in God's church. There's times, I, I know at times in my life, that God's miraculously protected me. I know that, brethren, you've had times when God's intervened. Every time something happens in our life, or we see something happen in the world, and we know God's hand is in it, we see prophecy being fulfilled, brethren. It's a time our faith should grow. It really and truly is. Our faith should then grow. Our trust in God should grow. I'd like to read to you as we conclude what Daniel said regarding what God revealed to him. Because he revealed to him were four kingdoms, but they're destroyed. There's a stone that was hewn without hands, and it destroyed those kingdoms. And from that stone came a kingdom. And brethren, it's why we're here. And even being here and being a part of this feast should build our faith. Mr. Meredith sees in all of us, brethren, in reality, our faith needs to grow. I think in part, that has to do not of just the day and the present. I believe personally, brethren, it has to do with what lies ahead, the challenges we may face. That we have to become a people who have a deep trust and a deep faith in God. And that we have our mind focused in a right way, that we clearly see what lies. And we have a focus on God and His promises. In the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 2, Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar and explained to him his dream. He told him here in verse 45. Well, let me read verse 44. It says, In the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. 
It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. We know that. That's history today. But brethren, there's a part of that history that lies just ahead of us. It's why we're here. We're here looking for God's kingdom, for that promise. And that promise is certain. That promise is sure. Notice in Daniel chapter 7, God gave the same assurance. It speaks here in Daniel chapter 7, verse 26, because it talks about how God's servants are going to be persecuted. And we know that that is going to happen. And we can see, really, in our society and the world about us, a foundation being laid for persecution. We can see a foundation literally being laid for anybody who truly believes the Bible literally. Verse 26 of Daniel 7 says, The court shall be seated, and they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. Brought out this morning, we're going to be given, we're co-heirs with Jesus Christ. We're his bride, his queen. We're going to inherit, and it's going to be given to us. And all dominion, excuse me, his dominion is an everlasting kingdom. And all dominion shall serve and obey him. God's given us a track record. He's given us and revealed to us in history. And there's many other prophecies, brethren. You're going to hear some of them in the coming weeks and days. Prophecies of God's kingdom, prophecies perhaps that have to do yet with things that will happen in this present world. But they're happening. They're happening about us. Don't put it on some timetable. That isn't what God says. God says, watch and pray. But brethren, as you watch, please understand there's another purpose that should also be taking place. As you watch and you see and understand your faith in God, your trust in God, it should grow. And brethren, that faith should accomplish what God wants. Let's go back to Hebrews where we started. Because God gave a promise to Abraham, and he's given a promise to us. In fact, when Paul spoke of what God did with Abraham, he also included us. Let's read on here in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 17. Thus God determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation, 
who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have with an anchor or as an anchor of the soul. See, our faith and the hope and the things God's revealed, the evidence, there's substance, but brethren, we also have a lot of evidence God has given that becomes an anchor. And it anchors our soul both sure and steadfast. Part of that anchor is also our Lord Jesus Christ. And which enters the presence behind the veil when the forerunner has entered for us. Even Jesus, having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. But God's purpose remains the same, brethren. Whether in substance or in evidence, God wants your faith and my faith, our faith, our collective faith, to anchor our soul, to keep us secure. That's why you use an anchor. It holds you securely and steadfastly in safety through trials and through difficulty, through stormy waters and seas. So watch. Watch what happens as we go forward. Pay attention in church, and if it's not read, go back and read it. Go on the Internet. Read the news and prophecy and what's being brought out to us by God's service at headquarters. If you have access, you don't have to become a news fanatic, but just try to keep track of the major things as they relate to prophecy. And brethren, make sure that you understand the knowledge God's given us. Read the booklets that were written by John O'Glynn. Make sure you clearly know and understand the picture of what lies ahead. And as it unfolds, don't get too caught up in this world. Put your trust and your faith in our soon coming King and our Lord and our Father in Heaven. Build your faith as you watch God's Word being fulfilled.